We count travel days as business days. So your day there and your day back are automatically business. What you do in between is important. So how you structure your days, how you structure your time, how you plan your meetings, that's all important because what constitutes a business day? You know, if you have one meeting on one day for an hour and then you're spending the rest of the day doing personal stuff, that's not going to count as a business day, even though maybe you had a business meeting. So you want to condense a lot of your business activities into chunks of time in a single day in order to, to meet those thresholds. Uh, and if that's the case, if it's over 50% of the time for business, you can spend the rest of the other days doing 100% personal activity and still write 100% of your the cost of your trip, meaning your travel and your your lodging. Of course, while you're on business travel, anything that you spend for business reasons, like a business meal or a conference, you know, anything that you do for business reasons while you're over there is deductible as a business expense. But that 50% of the time, more than half of the, the days of the trip for business is, is for lodging and, and travel. Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E. Or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join a waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vacation home? What if it could double as an investment property that makes you money and helps you save on taxes? Our new course, Accelerating Wealth Short-Term Rental Blueprint, will teach you how to purchase and set up your short-term rental the right way. Learn more about the course at semiretiredmd.com slash str hyphen course. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Welcome to another episode of the Doctors Building Wealth podcast. Today, we're fortunate to have Nick Iola joining us, and he is one of our most favorite CPAs to work with, and he's going to be joining us to talk about maximizing tax write-offs. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you guys for having me. Happy to be here. So for those who haven't met you before, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll dive right into talking about one of our favorite subjects, tax deductions. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my name's Nick. Uh, I own and operate a virtual CPA firm. We work exclusively with real estate investors, businesses within the real estate industry. So we're all in on real estate. I'm a real estate investor myself. I've grown up around it. Uh, I love it. I can talk about it all day as anybody who, who knows me will will attest to. Um, and I and to relate that to taxes is always great because it's, it's our goal to, to help people who do what we do and like to do what we do investing in real estate save money keep that money in your pocket. So we offer advisory services, tax prep services, accounting services uh, with the end goal of, of helping helping real estate investors save tax money. So yeah, these these tax write-offs are, are something we focus on every day and look to uh, help people maximize day in and day out. So I'm really excited to talk about it. 
Yeah, we are too. And one of the things that we really wanted to do with you was we brought together some of the most common questions that we get from our advanced investors. And so these are the questions, the nitty gritty details about how to maximize some of the benefits that you can get with your taxes with real estate. And one of the ones we get all the time is talking about repairs or expenses versus improvements and how you can write them off differently. So can we start out by talking about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of our most common too. Uh, and it's super important because the difference is staggering. If you're doing a uh, heavy renovation or you're buying a property that you're rehabbing, um, or even if you're just regular maintenance item, the way you report these can drastically change your outcome, your tax outcome. So just a little bit of background on both repairs are deductible operating expense. You can write them up in full against rental income. Capital improvements are fixed assets. They're capitalized to your balance sheet. They get added to as an asset on the tax return. They get depreciated over a set number of years, uh, depending on the, the class of life of the property, the type of the asset that you're capitalizing. Some are eligible for bonus depreciation, some aren't. Uh, and that kind of determines your depreciation right up year after year. Uh, so we want to make sure that we know exactly what we're doing when we're writing these off because you're either going to get a small deduction by way of depreciation year over year for possibly the next 30 or 40 years, or you get all of it now. Big difference. So the first thing we look at when we look at repairs versus improvements, and our guideline for this is the tangible property regulations, which I could probably speak for three hours about on that alone. But to condense it into a few bullet points, we're looking at the first thing we look at is what's called the de minimis safe harbor rules. Basically, what that tells us is that for for everybody listening to this podcast, the limit we're looking at is $2,500. And that basically means that if an expense is $2,500 or less, generally speaking, you can use this de minimis safe harbor to write the expense off in full as a repair or a maintenance item. If it exceeds $2,500, that's when we look at capitalizing it uh, and, and depreciating it, possibly through bonus depreciation or, or not, depending on the asset. That's our first threshold. Where does this fall in terms of cost? And we look at that line item by line item on an invoice. So when you're getting work done, if you're not doing it yourself and you have a general contractor or any kind of subcontractor doing work for you, extremely important to have an itemized invoice or scope of work or receipt or any kind of documentation that you can obtain from them that separates out supplies, materials, labor, even types of labor, different rooms they're working on, different items they're working on. The more itemized you can have it, the more realistic it is to have most of these line items fall underneath that de minimis safe harbor threshold of $2,500, which allows you to write it off more in full. So that's first and foremost, what we recommend to every investor we work with is whenever you have significant repair work you're doing, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how frequently you pay them. It's about the cost of the item and the labor. So to give you an example, if you have a $10,000 job and you pay them in five equal installments of $2,000, your payments are under 2500 but that doesn't that isn't what we look at it's it's the invoice so if you have one invoice number one invoice line item that just says renovation $10,000 we're forced to capitalize that and depreciate it over either 27 and a half years if it's a midterm or long-term rental or 39 years if it's a short-term rental or commercial property it's a big difference documentation is key that that's where we start the de minimis safe harbor and and looking at the the records that you have and then as far as improvements go yeah, we look at different asset classes to see if they're eligible for bonus depreciation or how long we have to depreciate them. Yeah, so let's actually talk through some examples because I think that's really a really helpful way how you were explaining that. Um, so we actually, you know, this is a communication, right, with you and your your CPA because 
sometimes things that maybe even would be improvements are actually repairs, just given the context, right, as well. So I can remember usually a roof is an improvement, but there were there we had a specific instance where the roof was actually installed improperly and it was leaking and it was a huge problem. And we were able to write off part of the, that as actually a repair because we were able to give that CPA context to why it was a repair, not an improvement. So I want to highlight that fact that it's actually really a communication with your CPA. If you have a knowledgeable real estate CPA, you can go back and forth and you can talk about this stuff really intelligently and be able to uh, take those nuances that make such a big difference because the one thing that we haven't mentioned is those repairs expenses, they're not, you're not going to have depreciation recapture on those. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It's a conversation because it, it's situational. Every expense is different. Every client is different. Every investor, every property is different. So it really is depending on the facts and circumstances. And, and you made a great point about the depreciation recaptures because if you're writing off expenses as repairs or maintenance or supplies as operating expenses, there's no depreciation there because they're they're operating expenses. So you don't recapture anything. Uh, if you're capitalizing an asset, it will be depreciated. Even if it's eligible for right now, 100% bonus depreciation or whatever the percentage is in future years, there's depreciation there. And if you were to sell the property or sell the asset or replace the asset, there's bonus or regular depreciation to recapture upon the disposition of that asset or sale of that asset or however it's disposed of, yeah, there's possibility to recapture that, which means you have to pay back the tax on the depreciation you've taken in prior years, or at least a portion of it. So uh, even more reason to want to write off as much as we can as repairs. Yeah. And so what we often see is, and we've done this ourselves, is we'll buy a new property, we'll get that cost segregation study up front, and then we'll go and we'll do all our repairs and our improvements to the property, have it really delineated by the contractor. At that point, do you suggest taking that repairs and list over to the cost segregation company and have them kind of help with doing some of the timelines or for depreciation? Or do you like to do that as a CPA? That's a great that's a great question. We we tend to approach that as being as flexible as we can. Uh, we're happy to do it. The cost seg firm, if you're happy with the cost seg firm, they do do additional improvement studies after you do the original cost seg study. If you're I mean, I know how how great you guys are with record keeping. So if you have if you have good records and detailed invoices, of course, we're able to go through the line items and and capitalize everything or or deduct everything as it should be following the, the regulations and the tax law. Uh, but also you do have the option to go through the cost seg firm. And we've worked with cost seg firms who do excellent improvement studies that we're happy to add to the tax return. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to us as long as we know one way or the other, it's reported correctly on the tax return. Okay, so awesome. So you get that information, then you know what can be repairs and immediately written off as an expense. You know what's an improvement needs to be depreciated. And then at that point, as a CPA, you can do that bonus depreciation now on those improvements, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a big difference. Can you remind us uh, about depreciation recapture and the uh, and the taxes? How do the taxes work on depreciation recapture? Depreciation recapture, it's a great question. Depreciation recapture is different for every type of asset. So if you have bonus depreciation, for example, if you do a cost segregation, these cost seg companies are breaking down the value of the building of the property into different asset classes. Now, if you have a long-term rental, you're still going to have your 27 and a half year property, which is your your structural items, foundation, walls, roof, everything that's structural. If it's a short-term rental, it's the same items, but those will be 39 year. So those are still regular depreciation, but you also have 
bonus depreciation on five-year property, sometimes seven-year property and 15-year property. So if we're looking at an asset like a five-year property asset, that's eligible for bonus depreciation. Right now, we get a, in 2022, we get 100% of that write-off. If you were to recapture that, it's personal property. It's recaptured at ordinary income tax rates. But if you have recapture on the building itself, like the 27 and a half year or 39 year property, that's recaptured at a max of 25% tax rate. So it, it does depend on the type of asset. But what recapture basically is, is that conceptually, the IRS is allowing you to take a deduction for depreciation to write off your income. So when you sell it, they want to, they want to add that deduction back because it's, you gotten the benefit of the deduction before and now you're getting compensated for the disposition of it. And you have to you have to repay that deduction you initially initially took, at least up to a certain point. Great. Maybe we uh, should talk about another category of write offs, and uh, and this one is a good follow up to the depreciation you were just talking about uh, a business car. And so uh, a number of us are using our cars uh, for business purposes and and writing them off. Uh, can you talk about that deduction? I love this deduction uh, because it's it applies to everybody. It can apply to everybody. There are several variables with auto deductions. Uh, a lot of things we look at, a lot of boxes to check to make sure you get the full, the right deduction. And I assume the right deduction everybody wants is to be able to write off the full cost of the car in the year they buy it. So I know we're at point of filming anyway, a couple of days left in the year. So this may be more applicable to, uh, to 2023 when you have more time to, to purchase a, a vehicle. But what we're looking at, uh, mainly is the type of vehicle. And we look at the type of vehicle, we're looking at basically the, the weight and also the, the type. Is it an SUV? Is it a, is it a sedan? Is it a, is it a cargo van? Like what the purpose of the vehicle and what's the type of vehicle and the weight of the vehicle? Uh, 6,000 pounds is a threshold that we look at, which will determine how much you can depreciate for the vehicle. And we'll get more into that in a minute. Uh, and also the business use of the vehicle. How, how often will you be driving it for business versus personal? Is it a 100% business vehicle or is it going to be? A mixed use vehicle. That also depends on how much we can write off and if you can write off hard, hardly anything or, or maybe close to the full, the full amount. So we look at a bunch of these things. And then we also look at, at that point, which deduction is best for you. The actual expenses, which includes depreciation and everything you pay for the car, like gas and registrations and car washes and maintenance or, or just a mileage deduction. And usually that comes into play when you use it more personally than for business. But basically what we want to do to write off the full cost of the car is you have to, well, for, for look for a full cost of the car, you have to use it 100% of the time for business. If you want a bonus depreciate or get a, at least get a, a nice size depreciation deduction, you want to at least use it more than 50% of the time for business because that's what, that's what makes you eligible for bonus depreciation. If the business use is under 50%, you won't be able to bonus depreciate it. And that's computed based on the amount of mileage you drive. So if you have 10,000 miles that you drive for the year, and 8,000 of those are business related. It's 80% business use. That's what we look at to determine that percentage. If it's over 50%, you're eligible for bonus depreciation. And that's dependent on the, the business use percentage. Basically, uh, in that example, if you use it 80% of the time, essentially, you'll be able to write off 80% of the vehicle. The caveat there is that uh, you have to use it over 50% of the time for five years to avoid recapturing that income. If your business use dips below 50%, in any year of the five years, first five years you own it, you will recapture that bonus depreciation you've taken. And it's important to note, again, that the qualifications on what type of vehicles qualify for bonus depreciation depends on, on the type of vehicle. So the most popular example is 6,000 pounds, has to be at least 6,000 pounds for it to be eligible. 
If it's a pickup truck, the bed length also has to be at least six feet. So you want to keep that in mind too, if you're looking for a pickup truck. Um, there are certain exceptions and, and, and specifications and details, but that's the, that's the main rule. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Movement Mortgage. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. We've been working with Dan and his team for over eight years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at srmd at movement.com to get a free consultation. And also let him know that you're part of the Semi-Retired MD community to get an exclusive discount on your next loan. Now back to the episode. I want to highlight a couple of places I've seen people get confused. Number one, I've seen people get confused about the 6,000 pounds actually and say, well, this car actually only weighs, you know, 5,000 pounds. So it doesn't count, but it's actually loaded, right? That it's 6,000 pounds. So for example, the Tesla X uh, Model X weighs less than 6,000 pounds, but they look at it fully loaded. And that's when it gets to that 6,000 pound threshold. So you can actually write it off. And then we also get a lot of people confused about, you know, does it matter if I lease? Does it matter if I buy for the depreciation? And then does it have to be new versus used? So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, I'll touch on that last point first, because that's that's an important one. And when we get all the time too, is if, if you buy a used car, that's okay. As long as it's new to you, you know, that's that's fine. It doesn't have to be brand new car right up the lot. So you can buy a used car as long as it's it's new to you. That's, that's eligible. Um, buying versus leasing does change it. Um, you can't depreciate a, a leased vehicle, but there are lease inclusions. There's different, there's separate rules for leases. You still can get a, ver- a pretty good write-off. And if you're using it 100% of the time for business, you know, we have, you have a lease payment, which is, is deductible. So, or at least a portion of it. So, uh, it does change the, the scope of how we approach the deduction. Uh, but you still are eligible for some kind of auto deduction on a leased vehicle. Uh, it's just, it, you know, there's no, is no purchase. So it wouldn't be like you're writing off 100% of the purchase of a vehicle because you're essentially renting it. And then what happens when you sell it? So let's say you sell it at year six versus you sell it at year three. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So selling it is it's treated just like real estate. It's treated just like a stock in principle that you have a selling price and you have a basis of the asset. So if you were to, if you were to bonus depreciate the full cost of the vehicle or close to it, your basis in that vehicle is going to be very low or, or, or nothing if it's a hundred percent bonus depreciation. So if you sell it at any point in time, you do the same kind of calculation. What's your selling price? What are your selling costs? And what's your adjusted basis in the asset? And if you have a gain, you'll pay tax on that. Uh, and there's, there's the same thing we just spoke about. With the rental side of it, there's depreciation recapture as ordinary income. If you've depreciated any portion of that vehicle, it will be recaptured as, or- as ordinary income. And any gain will be any gain over and above that will be determined based on the holding period. Did you hold it more than a year? Did you hold it less than a year? Uh, it depends. So we do look at uh, we do look at 
planning for sales of automobiles because oftentimes the goal is always let's write off as much as we can now and then we sell it we don't want to we don't want to add to your tax liability so uh we strategize around that but selling it would would definitely result in a gain if you have no basis left in the car yeah and that's a really great point is for the real estate investor the dollar in your pocket today is worth so much more to you than a dollar in your pocket 5 years from now because you reinvest that dollar and it turns into so much more wealth and so i think what we're all trying to do with you know business car write offs and and things like 1031 exchanges is make sure we keep as many dollars in our pockets today so we can reinvest them and knowing that you know somewhere down the line we're going to have to probably pay it back unless we 1031 until we die right but but that key is getting the dollar in your pocket today. Okay, let's let's talk about business travel. So can you talk about some of the common kind of deductions that people can use with the real estate uh, empires when they're traveling for business? And in particular, uh, people like us who have families and we're traveling with families, mm-hmm. you know, how do you kind of like separate out the hotel or the airfare for kids, right? So those, th- those types of questions come up all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's important to know that, especially as you're, like you mentioned, building a real estate empire, you may have properties out of state that you're going to visit or properties in states that you want to invest in and also like to visit. So it's, it's a popular conversation we have. And business travel is, it all comes back to record keeping, just like the repairs versus the improvements. Are you keeping good track of your itinerary, what you're doing over there? Are you keeping good track of your expenses? Because like you mentioned, paying for kids, their flights are not deductible. Their stays are not deductible. It's the business owners, right? So. If we're looking at that, how, how good are you at tracking this information? How much records, how many records do you have? How reliable are they? So for business trips to be deductible, we want to look at the length of stay and then your itinerary, what you're doing there for a trip to be 100% deductible. And when I say a trip, I basically mean your, your travel and your lodging, your transportation and your lodging costs. So if you, if you fly somewhere and you stay in an Airbnb or you stay in a hotel, we're looking at all of those costs uh, associated with that. So. If your stay is a weekend or a week long, we look at that as a block of time and we want to make sure that you're over 50% of the time of your stay is business related. So those are business days. We count travel days as business days. So your trip there, your day there and your day back are automatically business. What you do in between is important. So how you structure your days, how you structure your time, how you plan your meetings. That's all important because what constitutes a business day? You know, if you have one meeting on one day for an hour, and then you're spending the rest of the day doing personal stuff that's not going to count as a business day, even though maybe you had a business meeting. So you want to condense a lot of your business activities into chunks of time in a single day in order to, to meet those thresholds. Uh, and if that's the case, if it's over 50% of the time for business, you can spend the rest of the other days doing 100% personal activity and still write 100% of your the cost of your trip, meaning your your travel and your your lodging. Of course, while you're on business travel, anything that you spend for business reasons, like a business meal or a conference or, you know, anything that you do for business reasons while you're over there is deductible as a business expense. But that 50, 50% of the time, more than half of the, the days of the trip for business is, is for lodging and, and travel. So that's kind of how we, how we think about it. And, uh, it, you know, for our clients, we have travel itineraries to help you kind of organize that. That way you can kind of see and plan out your day and, of course, if you're planning a trip in advance, we'd like to go over that with you guys and make sure that, you know, we're structuring it the right way. But yeah, otherwise, it's a great tool to be able to see some areas that you like or visit areas that you have family or, or have investments and and be able to get a nice little tax break. Awesome. 
And lastly, we wanted to really talk about the expenses that occur in the first year. So we have uh, many in our community who maybe, let's say, they're starting they're taking our course and it's, mm-hmm. let's say, October, and they know that they're going to be buying, um, but they don't know if they're going to buy that year. It may be actually that they're going to buy the following year, but they want to be able to write off the, cor- the course, for example, or any visits to the area to look for a property, um, but they may not buy a property that's actually earning money that year. Can you talk through what, sh- what kind of things they should think about in making sure they can maximize their tax write-offs that first year, even though they may not own a property? Yeah, that, that's a tough one because what we look at for real estate investors is, is basically when you start business. And this goes for any any business, when you're open for business, when you start business. You know, if you had a, a retail store, for example, the same principle would apply. It's when the doors are open for somebody to come in and buy something. In this case, it's when you have a property that's available to be rented. Doesn't necessarily mean it has to be rented, it just has to be available for rent. Uh and, and you know, livable, obviously, usable. So when we're looking at we know that there's expenses to get up and running. If you were to form entities, or if you were to get, um, you know take a course, or if you were to um, any kind of any kind of expenses that you may have to get yourself up and running, research, travel time, things like that. Those typically we we postpone until you're you have an entity uh, a property that's in that's purchased and in service. Uh, so you don't lose the deduction. You'll never lose the deduction. They kind of just sit on your books and hang out until you have a property that's in service that you can. You can then place it in service, add it to your basis in the property and continue to depreciate like you normally would. So they don't go away. So that's a common question that we get that if you if you paid for expenses and at the end of the year in the fourth quarter of, of year X and you don't buy a property until year Y, do those go away? They don't. They don't. We do take them in the future. So it's important to keep track of your, you know, keep records, keep track of your expenses, operate as if you have the property already. Same thing if you're forming entities, you know, for, forming an entity like an LLC or a corporation, which, you know, if you're if you're doing rentals, we really have no business forming corporations. But if you're forming LLCs or trusts or any kind of entities, that in and of itself doesn't start the business. So, you know, any if you're looking to form an entity for the sole reason of being able to deduct expenses, uh, it won't it won't help you accelerate those deductions. So if that's something you're thinking about doing before the end of the year, you may, you, you know, be the same tax situation if you waited until until the following year. Uh, so the entity itself doesn't doesn't indicate the start of business. It's the it's it's what's going on inside it. You know, is there a property? Is it in service? And that's when we that's when we start the clock for taking deductions. Perfect. All right, great. So keep really great records, which probably applies to everything we've talked about today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's shift gears and talk about some advanced topics for our students who are have gone through our course and and have purchased real estate and now they're now they've generated losses. And one of the questions that we get often is, you know, is there a limit in the amount that you can write off of your W-2 income? And we understand there's there was a change in 2021. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite conversations to have, not because the loss is being limited, but because we have so many losses that we have to even introduce the the conversation of it being limited. So if we're having this conversation, it's a great tax year for you. Mm-hmm. So basically what this means is that um, th- there is what's called excess business loss limitations. Uh, is It's a limit on how much you can deduct against W-2 and other income. Uh, it's adjusted for inflation for 2022 and 2023. For joint filers, it's 540000 For anyone who doesn't file a joint return, it's $270,000. Uh, so if you have net 
uh, a net loss, meaning your expenses, including depreciation and bonus depreciation, which is where most of this comes from. Cost segregation, big bonus depreciation numbers, which usually means a huge loss. Um, that's where these, these typically come from. If you have expenses, including depreciation that exceed your income from that business in the year, that's where we're, that's what we're looking at when we're determining these numbers. So, you know, if you do have losses that exceed 270,000 or 540, depending on your filing status, that the excess will be limited and carry forward to the next year for you to be able to use next year. And it retains the classification in the year that it was generated. So if you have an STR and you're a material participant and it's a non-passive activity now and next year you pass it off to a property manager, or maybe you don't materially participate, it retains its non-passive uh, classification as a net operating loss. So you still will be able to use that. So there's some silver lining there. Um, but again, yeah, if we're having, if we're having that conversation, you have a, you have a major write-off and it's, it's all good news. And again, you won't lose it. You'll just have to wait a year to use the rest. And I also want to clarify if you're 1099 or you own your own business, this doesn't apply. Is that correct? Well, that's all considered business. Yeah. So all of these, all businesses are thrown into it. So it'll apply if all of the, the, the net of all of your businesses exceed that. Uh, but usually if you have 1099 or if you're a K1 and you're, you know, material participant in a business and it's a non-passive activity, you can kind of net these all together with your real estate. And that's, that's kind of what we focus on. So it's not per business. It's the aggregate across all businesses. W2 isn't considered a business. Passive investments aren't considered businesses. Uh, interest dividends, capital gains from stock, crypto, those aren't businesses. So those are all separate and apart. Any active material, uh, businesses in which you materially participate in. Kind of get thrown into this excess business loss bucket and you see what happens at the end of everything and, and if there's a, a net loss in excess of those thresholds that's when we introduce this limitation all right that's great so if you have a really great year like you talked about and you have enough losses to roll over now let's talk about the rollover so we understand that there's a limit on the rollover as well is that true there is a limit on the rollover. So, well, the full amount will roll over. So if you don't lose anything that gets rolled over, there's a limit on how much you can use in the following year. And that's up to 80% of your taxable income for that year, not including the net operating loss that you're carrying over. So you, you pull that out of the return and you look at what the taxable income is for that year. You know, if it's, if it's a million dollars, you're looking at $800,000 that of, of uh, which is 80% of your taxable income. That'll be eligible for you to use if you're out of your net operating loss bank. And if it exceeds that amount, it gets carried forward to the next year and you apply the same 80% limit. So at a certain point in time, you know, your net operating losses will dwindle year after year because you get to use them. And then, uh, you know, you'll use up the rest of it because after a certain point, 80% of your taxable income will exceed the amount of net operating losses you have, most likely, and, and you'll be able to use it. But yeah, 80% is the number of your taxable income that it's limited awesome. to. Awesome. Well, those were some really advanced topics. So I know for people who are newer to real estate, some of it may have gone over your head. But the good news is at some point, this is probably going to be relevant to you. So you can, you know, bookmark this and come back to it once you have uh, your empire partially built. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. And we'll put a link below for people who want to reach out to you and, uh, and get to know you a little bit more and look at your tax services. Um, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It's always always good to talk to you guys and help out your your group. It's an amazing group. So if anybody has any questions or or anything, uh, I'm I'm always happy to help. Thank you.
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.